that were still saying, I'm seeing this problem at DeWitt. Do something. Do something. This is a scene that is playing out in government and community meetings across California. It's a scene that seems to repeat over and over as communities grapple with how to deal with homelessness. In 2017, the rate of homelessness nationwide increased for the first time in seven years, driven by surging numbers in California. The state is home to over a quarter of the nation's overall homeless population. The problem has touched every corner of California, including Placer County. Here's Health Officer Dr. Rob Oldham. Placer County is um, a county sort of uh, that spans from the northeast uh, Sacramento suburbs all the way up to Lake Tahoe. It's a challenge. Um, so it's it's actually one of the wealthiest counties in California. You know, our homeless numbers are not uh, very high relative to other other counties, even in the region. Uh, but we have pockets of uh, of homelessness. We do have kind of areas where uh, have uh, even more uh, people experiencing homelessness than you might expect. It's in that climate that whole person care emerged, a program that is helping rewrite the story for homeless people who had long fallen through the cracks. Whole person care really was it's a it's a national effort. California was game, and um, definitely even at the federal level, there's been an explosion of uh, homelessness and um, kind of healthcare expenses related to people experiencing homelessness or people who are in other target groups for whole person care, which includes individuals with serious mental illnesses, substance use disorders, people who are involved in the criminal justice uh, system, um, and uh, people who have multiple chronic health conditions. And then plus people who are homeless or at high risk for homelessness. Those folks cost a lot of money to multiple systems of care, and their outcomes um, are not that great, uh, despite the fact that we spend all this money. So even paying for things like housing, it's kind of the, the idea is to look, uh, look at recognizing that there are lots of things outside of the hospital walls or even outside of the healthcare delivery system in general that work to improve outcomes to address the social determinants of health. And, and so it's kind of an experiment, if you, if you will. As it relates to Placer County, uh, we were one of the uh, initial, I believe it was 18 counties that uh, were selected to participate in this pilot. And each county also got to pick, uh, to kind of decide what their program was going to look like and how it was going to be set up. In Placer County, we um, decided actually to, to work, uh, have a, we're one of the most intensive type of interventions in the state in that we're putting a lot of resources to a relatively small uh, um, number of people. And the the reason, the thinking behind that, we had actually just done um, a comprehensive assessment of homelessness in Placer County prior to the application. And we had a, a national expert come in and uh, what he said was, yeah, Placer, your homelessness actually isn't so bad here relative to uh, other places in the country or even in California relative to other counties. Uh, the number per capita homelessness is pretty low. But um, within that population, you have a real problem. You have uh, people who've been homeless for a long time, who are older and who are experiencing lots of chronic health conditions, which we kind of already knew uh, anecdotally. And so that's why when we developed our intervention, we said, well, we don't have to hit, you know, huge thousands of people who are homeless, like in, you know, Los Angeles, for instance. We really ha- need to focus on these people who are, uh, have been in Placer for a long time, have been homeless for a long time, and who are experiencing either multiple chronic health conditions or mental illness or substance use disorders. And uh, they're going to take a lot, a lot more effort. Uh, but once we kind of uh, start to work those people and get them into housing and other resources, it's going to free up uh, the whole system to address, you know, the people who are newer, new, you know, kind of entering into homelessness. 
I'm Katie Combs Pritchard with the county's Health and Human Services team. Over the last several months, I've shadowed staff and clients in our whole person care program. And over the next few episodes, I hope you'll join me as we take a deep dive into this program, what it looks like, who it serves, and the results we're seeing that have made a difference everywhere from homeless shelters to emergency rooms. It's offering new hope to help hundreds of people get off the streets. It can happen to anyone. Because I had a normal life, I had a job, I had friends, um, I had my own home, well, me and the bank, but, you know, and then, uh, you know, I would take vacations every year and complain that it was Monday morning and I had to get up for work and just the normal life. No one ever imagines themselves winding up homeless. My name's Carly. Um, I'm a 56-year-old single woman. So tell me about kind of what started down the path to where you became homeless. Was it? Well, I think I've always been on the shy side, and I was kind of a tag along with my sister. I had very few friends. The ones I had were very, very close, but I didn't have a a large uh, circle of friends. Um, So I think I've always been that. I have a tendency to not be around a lot, be comfortable around a lot of people. And um, I uh, lost my job after 10 years um, in the admin world. And uh, from there, I didn't leave my house. Although I job was job hunting, it was all online, so I had a tendency to not go out very often. And the longer I stayed in my house... Uh, the harder it was for me to go out. I got to the point where um, I had to have, I wouldn't go out unless I had a friend with me, and they would bring my mail. I had two friends that would help me, actually three, and they would either bring my mail or bring my groceries and that kind of stuff because it was just got to the point where I couldn't go. That's when it started was when I lost my job and didn't leave my home. And then the longer you stay away, from people and society and just normal everyday life, it just becomes harder and harder to do. As as your agoraphobia was starting to develop, I mean, what was it like when you would step outside? What what would it feel like? I would, um, well, your heart would, my heart would race like crazy. And I would get hot and sweaty and um, I would shake really, really bad, and I would just have to sit down no matter where I was. I, I would have to, because I couldn't stand up. Because in, in this time, I also became uh, anemic. So I was losing weight roll heavily, so I was really skinny, and I didn't have any strength at all. And so I would just couldn't hold myself up, and I would just have to sit sometimes for, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes, whether it's on the curb, on the sidewalk. You know, um, I, my condo was an upstairs unit, and sometimes I would have to scooch down on my behind mm-hmm. to get down because I couldn't, couldn't physically walk down my stairs. But uh, so, so it was just... And your mind just races, it, and it just doesn't make sense. And it, you start feeling like if somebody walks around you, 
doesn't help that you feel silly sitting on a curb, but uh, you just are so uncomfortable. You don't people think you're rude because you can't say hello. I look at people now a little differently when I'm in a grocery store or something if they don't smile or say hello because I've been there. Was it surprising to you? Like, did you recognize yourself, or what, what was what were your what, what was your thought process around this time of what was happening to you? Well, I I didn't feel like myself unless I was talking to a friend or family member because I was comfortable. I was in my safe zone, and uh, if I got out of my comfort zone, then I felt like I was just kind of on my shoulder looking down, you know, it really wasn't me. And then it started uh, affecting me so much, and I was drinking too much, and because then you get that false bravado, and you think, oh, I can do this, and that certainly didn't help matters. So you would drink to try to help you be brave enough to, right. to go outside, right. essentially? Right, right. And it just... Not the—I think it's the normal thing people do, but it's not the right way to do it. It's not the correct way. It's not going to help you. And that turned my life upside down as well. And, uh—oh, sorry. No, that's okay. Uh, So, um, that's kind of it in a nutshell. was able to keep my house for about almost five years um, being unemployed and then all of a sudden I just you know exhausted my savings account and uh, lost my home and I lived in my car for over a year. Chevy Impala probably 2001-2002 it was an old car ran great I got rid of it, though, because I got a DUI. I was sleeping in my car, and uh, the cops came up, gave me a ticket because I was in my car, even though I wasn't driving. And so I lost my license, and so I just got rid of my car. I researched what was around and heard about the shelter and went there. gives you more empathy for people and you just don't, you know, you see somebody homeless and you think, before, I would say, they're just lazy, drug addicts, alcoholics, whatever. And then when you find yourself in that same situation, you think, and then you know them and you meet them, you think, they're just normal people. They may have an issue, whether it's substance or mental health or both, because they tend to go hand in hand in my, from what I've seen. Now, this is true. Roughly 40% of respondents in Placer's 2018 homeless count reported having a serious mental illness, and a quarter admitted to a substance use disorder. Another trend is chronic homelessness. A lot of, many, many of our clients have been homeless for at least a year and some for several years. This is Jeff Smith, who oversees whole person care. And, you know, they'll, sometimes there'll be some couch surfing or they'll be at the shelter for a little while or they'll go from shelter to shelter. 
sometimes, you know, they might get a check at the start of the month. They'll stay in a hotel for two or three nights. It's just the ongoing no permanent address and homeless often. And again, a year at least for many of them and some of them several years. In the Auburn shelter, Carly made an unlikely friend, an elderly man whose formal name is Egbert, but who everyone knows as Skip. My dad was in the Navy. He called me Skipper when I was a kid. When I, my very first time at the shelter, um, I met him there. Um, I just remember talking to him a few times, but not much, not much of a conversation. You know, I, I didn't know him well. And like I said, I don't, I'm not real social. Skip is 70 years old and has been homeless off and on for decades. I grew up in, in the Roseville area and I uh, have nine uncles and three aunts and they're on the war memorial there. You know, I'm, I'm proud of my family. I walk down the streets in Roseville and see all the people there. The Tower Theater, we used to go there when we were kids and watch cartoons and movies and things like that. And you um, you said you graduated from Roseville High School? Yeah, I, I got a... I graduated from Roseville High School. I got a GED test. Passed the GED test there. And I went to uh, Sierra College for about two years. Did you know what you... What did you want to do at that point? I grew up building, my dad was, he worked for the railroad in a carpenter shop there. Then he went to work for himself, and we did exterior trim, siding on the houses. My mother's name was Billie Jean Earp, E-A-R-P, like a Wyatt Earp. Wyatt Earp was my grand, my mother's uncle. He's my great uncle. You know, I'm, I'm proud of that. Quick caveat, we have no idea if Skip is really related to Wyatt Earp. He's got a lot of quirky stories. There are his fishing escapades. I caught a 26-pound German brown trout in Gore Creek in the Vale, Colorado. There's his time as a shrimp boat captain. In Texas, I went on a boat as a header. That's the person that they pinched the heads off the shrimp. And then there's the gold panning. I learned how to do that when I was about nine years old from my dad. I go up to the north, we go up to, to the American River above Auburn. Up by Coloma, where gold was discovered, because gold runs, when it rains, it runs downhill. How Skip first became homeless is a little unclear. He describes spiraling out of control after family tragedy. When my mom and dad fell apart, I kind of fell apart too. And um, I had a cousin, Tommy that was killed in Vietnam. That kind of put me off, too, a little bit. You know, it's funny, when 
You lose somebody in your family, you know, that's real close to you, you, you lose a lot. There's a lot of love going on there. I was depressed over the whole situation. And when you get depressed, you start getting angry and you get angry at yourself. And when you do that, that's when you start messing up real bad. Because when you're angry at yourself, then you don't care anymore. For Skip, homelessness meant a lot of camping. He feels at home outdoors. But age and the law caught up with him. In the summertime, there's only one prospect. In the wintertime raining, you can't rain. You can't be out there in the street. So you, and would you camp? Wet. Would you camp yeah. by the river? Yeah, we'd go down there. And um, they have laws now where you can't do that anymore, which I can understand, too, because you have a lot of stupid people out there getting drunk and causing, starting fights and all kinds of ignorant things. Me, I'm not that way. In the winter times, I go to a shelter because... I don't work like I used to. I can't. I have a blood disease that's called polycythemia, dura, which, and that is your body produces too many red cells. Okay? And your blood gets like 90-weight motor oil, doesn't run through your system like it should. And it could, it could lead to death. I think he's just been kind of a, a rambler for a rolling stone for many years, so I think when he was young, that worked for him really easily. He's kind of one of those outdoorsman type guys, so it wasn't that big of a deal when he was young. He could go out and sleep in a sleeping bag and catch fish and be a wild man, and, you know, do the gold thing. But uh, as he's getting older, it's he, he's not really as it's not as really as you can't do that. Now that's Todd Perbetsky, who would become Skip's case manager with Whole Person Care. And so Skip ended up at the temporary homeless shelter in North Auburn. It's the shelter that first referred Skip to whole person care, as the program was just getting going and starting to enroll clients in spring 2017. I was um, introduced to him as he was kind of one of our first um, our first uh, people that was uh, referred to us from the shelter. Actually, they had actually two in mind um, that had been there for a really long time, and they really suspected that they would be there forever. So um, so those were the first two that we took. We get referrals from a lot of different places. When we were starting the program out, we needed a lot of clients all at once, and there's not a better place to find a lot of homeless people than the homeless shelter. So we went out to the shelter. We had a list of high utilizers that the health plans had given us, so we looked for those people in the homeless shelters, and we found them first, uh, the ones whose names we had. Uh, and then we took on others that were high-need clients not connected to other services at the shelters. And then we filled up our program pretty quickly. And we still take new clients. So new referrals primarily we're getting from law enforcement probation and from the hospitals. Tell me a little bit about the, um, the criteria of the program. Sure. So there, there are multiple criteria that a person can have to get into the program. They only need to have 
one of them. Well, a foundationist, they have to have Placer County Medi-Cal. That's, that's number one. Besides that, there's other criteria they need. They only need one of them. However, we have focused on the homeless population. So being homeless or risk of homeless is enough to get them into the program. Uh, other criteria are like justice involved, like someone who's recently released from jail, um, someone who has two or more chronic health conditions, someone who has multiple visits to the emergency room, mental health issue, and or a substance use issue. We do provide intensive services, so I have really focused on us pretty much taking the, the hardest to reach clients, the ones who are falling through the cracks. A lot of times... In my experience, the people really are looking for help, and the engagement process can go really quickly and easily. They want help. We are consistent. We show up. We're there, and they engage with us. Kind of like when Todd met Skip. He's always been really pleasant, but he definitely has his, his fits occasionally. <laughs> but uh, we love him. Everybody you know in the community recognizes him, and he, he knows all the people at the KFC. Everybody loves him and, and uh, has come to know him. Todd is also Carly's case manager. He met her even before Whole Person Care started. I was working at the Welcome Center. Um, I, was, I had just started, so I was just getting familiar with some of the population. And it was a winter where we had rain. Two, it's 2016. We had rain almost four days a week all winter long. And the shelter was required to have all of the residents leave during the day. So they would come in in their drenched clothes and they would take their wet socks off and put them over the heater vent and make the whole <laughs> building smell like feet. And uh, I was, you know, trying to, we'd have 40 or 50 people in there that were at each other's throats because they were all miserable um, and wet, I mean, for a good reason. And uh, she used to come in every day and read her book and put her headphones on and try to ignore everybody. But sometimes that wasn't always ideal or, you know, wasn't able to do that. And I was trying to make the best of things, too, of being kind of new and, and learning about, you know, and meeting people and whatnot. And so um, we just kind of naturally got along because we saw each other going, oh, geez, not this guy again. Or went, oh, my gosh, more more stinky feet, socks on the heater. Oh, my God, not again. Uh, and then so when the program started, she was in the shelter, and I recognized her. So I thought, you know, that would be great to have her as client because I knew that she was um, really trying to better herself and improve her situation. Um, I'd always seen that with her. I'd never seen her go out, you know, like off the hinges or anything. Um, so she became one of our first clients. She's, I think she may have been our third client. How do you approach someone who is more resistant to help, at least in early? I mean, have you ha, – because it sounds like at least Carlene and Skip were probably two who were, were pretty welcoming of that from early on. Have you had success in terms of, like, slowly building a relationship with someone who doesn't necessarily want help and, and, and like, chipping away at that? Oh, I find that is, is – um, they're used – some of those people are used to um, – not getting help or people not really, you know, ignoring them or not following, not following through. So I think that's a big part of our program has been was is building that rapport. And then so those, some of those people are less likely to want to to ask us for help when they see their buddy getting help from us, and they all talk to each other. So 
you know, eventually this person might say, okay, those guys have all been helped and they're, and, okay, hey. And then, then they'll approach us, you know. And then when they see us every day making our rounds in the shelter and saying hi to everybody, um, they, they see that we are people that are making a difference and going our, out of our way to, to, to meet their needs and to help them. There are definitely people who are not interested for a variety of reasons. Um, there could be a mental health reason that's keeping them from engaging. You know, they could be paranoid or untrusting for some reason. Um, there could be criminal justice reasons. You know, they may have something on their record or they're afraid they're going to get in trouble and they just don't want to get involved with anybody. They may be substance using and they know that you know, deep down, they may want to do something about it, but they may know themselves well enough to know there's, they're not going to work on it right now. It's not something they're going to work on right now, so other things will be difficult for them. There's a wide variety of reasons for why they may not want to engage right now, and and I think that's fine. You know, I think that people generally do not make improvements in their life unless it's something that they want to do. Um, so, you know, my philosophy is we meet them where they're at. Whatever they're interested in working it on is what we'll work with them on. So the person who's not wanting to work on anything, what we're working with them on is building a relationship so they will maybe often be at the same place. Um, I will just go out and do a visit and say hello um, and build a relationship so that they know that when they are ready, we're here. The ones who do that more are the homeless liaison team practitioners that work with law enforcement. So they will go out to the camps with law enforcement. I have a practitioner placed with sheriffs, and I have a practitioner placed with probation. And we work with the other agencies uh, in the county as needed also. So today we partnered, Gloria and I partnered with the Auburn Police Department to go do some outreach for some of our homeless folks that are living out in some fields and some camps and we have gone to a number of them uh, and have had several contacts with people. I'm in a car with Gloria and Kristen, two whole person care staff who have been embedded with Auburn police and Placer County probation all day. As I meet up with them, the police are finishing up a domestic violence report and taking a man into custody while his girlfriend, also homeless, talks to the whole person care team. They start calling around to connect her with programs for victims of domestic violence. Hi, my name is uh, Kristen. I'm a social worker in Placer County, and I work with local law enforcement. And I'm um, out with a young woman whose boyfriend just got arrested for hitting her and trying to get her linked to you guys for some services. Um, she doesn't really have any resources around here, and she's pretty vulnerable. Well, she's homeless. She's been living in a camp for a couple months. Um, she did. I, I'm more worried about her being a victim of uh, domestic violence. We work together in our unit collaboratively to tackle uh, problems with like a three-pronged approach between the sheriff's office, probation, and HHS. This is Brian Harris, a Placer County Sheriff's deputy who's been on the job for more than 15 years. He's long focused on the North Auburn area, 
but more recently was assigned to what's been dubbed the Homeless Liaison Team with probation and health and human services staff, focusing exclusively on homelessness. Probably 75-80% of the calls that I would go to that I was dispatched to were transient-related at the time in this area. But I also had all the other ancillary calls that a beat deputy has. And so when they came out with this, uh, to me it was a no-brainer because, A, I was already doing the job in a, in a well, fractional. I was, only, I was doing part of the job. I already knew a lot of the transient folks. So I literally had the same days of work, the same shift, except now it freed me up just to focus solely on that issue and not deal with uh, taking cold burglary reports or cold vandalism reports and some of the other things that we have to deal with. So it freed me up to get it, uh, more of an education in this area and uh, direct out my focus 100% of the time on the, on the issue. So I've seen the progression of the, uh, the problems that we've had here and, uh, and the answer to it, how, we're, how the county is dealing with it. Um, we first formed our unit in July of 2016, and it did take uh, several months before we got the HHS component added to the team. I have to go back before we had this unit, before we had the HHS or even probation component working so close with us. The, um, your average deputy would go to a call and uh, they would encounter somebody that um, needed help. But the what we had our own little criteria, criteria, our checklist was, okay, is there a crime? If there was a crime, identifying what the crime was and coming up with a solution, do we take enforcement action, either take them to jail or issue them a citation in the field, or maybe just use our discretion and walk away? Uh, What's happened now is we've gotten so much more of an education by working collaboratively with Health and Human Services and probation. Now we arrive on a scene or we're dealing with somebody in front of us and is there a crime? We still go with that same checklist. And if it's a no, we don't necessarily just turn and walk away. And then we look for maybe some other solutions, um, be able to link this person up that's in front of us with um, maybe other service that, services that they need, either mental health, um, substance abuse um, assistance, um, gearing them towards housing or helping them get their Social Security in order, uh, medical appointments. And that's where we rely on uh, health and human services. I have to... <coughs> balance out the fact that I, not only am I there for the transient population, but I'm also there for the rest of the citizens of Placer County as well. And they have rights as well. And their rights are, you know, maybe not to be panhandled uh, when they're going shopping, you know, uh, these types of things. So I, I, there's, there's a balance, you know, I have to try to um, take as much as I can, take myself out of the equation and just represent the sheriff's office and the person in front of me, and then the citizens, the third party behind me, and try to, um, you know, reconcile all that uh, in, while I'm on scene and make a decision about what do we, what do I feel is best for all parties. How much of it is like familiar faces that you kind of, you know, get to know and learn their personalities? All of them. New... I'd say 90 percent of them, I don't meet new people daily. I probably, I'm kind of. Uh, a little bit of a Rolodex, mental uh, Rolodex of uh, our transient community up to, I mean, we'll see people, maybe a dozen, and I'll know 11 out of 12, if not all 12 already. And, um, there's a certain, even with people that I've arrested many times, there's a certain amount of rapport building that we already have. 
and that eventually they start talking to us. They'll start talking to me usually last, Kristen first, and uh, they have to talk to the probation officer. But uh, they'll they'll flag me down and they'll they'll start um, giving me some information about things that are going on, and uh, especially if they feel like somebody's safety is in jeopardy, they seem to uh, their buddies. You know, the, they want to tell me about that, and then we're able to kind of put them on our radar as well and monitor that. Today might not be the day, you know, we'll tell them, you know, kind of a cause and effect and what we see the pattern is going and what their life is, where we feel that they are headed. Um, we'll tell them again tomorrow and a week from now and a month from now. And at some point, maybe that will, will stick. And all of a sudden, then they're in a program and they're making some changes. You know, some people just will not be amenable to services, but a lot of them are. And so if we can, you know, help one or two people here and there and that too comes forward eight etc you know now you're starting to actually help people out and they become advocates for you they'll start talking to other folks that need that need help and they're going to get it from one of their peers and not just somebody wearing a badge having probation knowledge um having the hhs component coupled with the sheriff's office is it's so much more efficient because now we're able to, you know, do overlapping as far as the services that we're able to offer and help people out and maybe reduce the recidivism. It's like on-the-spot triage, to be honest. You get probation, you get law enforcement, you get human services, and it all comes together in the field in the moment, minute by minute, and we just roll it out. This is Kristen Moore, the whole person care worker who works in the field with Deputy Harris and other law enforcement. I'm used to kind of being out in the field and contacting people that I do know and that I don't know and just quickly kind of assessing what services may be needed or not needed and what's appropriate in that moment and what's not. As we continue to make contact with some of the same people over and over again, you kind of learn to figure out like, okay, what is this person motivated by? Like, what kinds of things do they want to work on? What has worked in the past? What hasn't? And what do you want to do moving forward? And so we get to have a lot of those conversations. And these efforts are bearing fruit, Deputy Harris says. I think that the amount of people that we are able to connect with to get them into treatment has, has grown. Um, there's a personal face on it for me because I know a lot of them. And so that's changed. The amount of, uh, believe it or not, visibility of, of those folks as far as their behavior has drastically changed. If you look at the um, 49, Highway 49 and Bell intersection, um, if you were able to take a snapshot, uh, a time-lapse video between now and two to three years ago, you'd be shocked because you, you'd see three or four uh, shopping carts being rolled at various points across the intersection, uh, transients at every corner, and you don't have that now. The relationships built when a homeless person first starts to engage in services carry over to when they're enrolled in whole person care. Here's case manager Todd Perbetsky back again. You feel like they're friends, really. I, friends, community, uh, almost nearly family, basically. I mean, you, you see them every day, you say hi, is there anything to help you with? They, they really um, respect that you say hi to them and that you're helping them. And nothing is more telling about that bond than the little wooden circles that line Todd's cubicle. I make dream catchers. Dream catchers are... There's something special for somebody. You know, people need to they need to know what they are and what they were used for. Indians used them for 
They'll catch all the bad dreams. We're the, in the center, good dreams go through the center. That's why they're called dream catchers. So tell me about, yeah, your, do you remember learning to make them with your mom? Do you, do you remember that? Yeah, yeah when I used to sit, she used to sit me on her lap and we'd sit there and she'd show me how to put them together. You go from different spots, you try to, you take a circle, it's like you split it in half, then split it in half, and split it in half until you have about a three-inch space between each one. And then you go to the center of that space with your string, to the next one, all the way down until you get to the very middle. The real, I say they're simple, but some people go, how do you, in the world do you do that? Well, it, it takes patience and time, a little practice, and you can go a long ways. So how many years have you been making those things, and how many do you think you've made? Oh, God, I've made thousands of them. You know, here I make, I usually try to make about 30 a month. I make one a day here, and I give them to the younger generation and teach them what that's all about, why they're made. That makes me feel good, you know, to know that you're, you're creating something that people like. I actually get paid most times in dream catchers. I have my, my old desk area surrounded with dream catchers, and uh, it's cool. He, uh, he's a character. His mom taught him to do dream catchers, and he likes to give them to... To, he, he likes to he's one of those guys that, and I think a lot of our homeless people are like this if they weren't a lot of them are, are really generous and they would if they were in a better situation they would want to give you know and I see a lot of them like that um, and that's kind of his way of of giving to you what he can is is his he doesn't want handouts he wants to be you know I want to give you something and you're helping me I want to help you and, and that's a lot of them are really like that they, they work for me, you know, because if I hang one above my bed, it seems like I have good dreams, I don't have bad dreams. Over the next few episodes, we'll look at how whole person care clients like Skip and Carly work to escape the bad dream of homelessness and aspire to some good dreams. The dream of health, the dream of a home, the dream of independence. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.